0: In today's edition of IFS Zooms In, we'll be looking at the longer-term effects of the current crisis on the nation's health and on the delivery of healthcare. That's not a question about whether COVID-19 will stay with us, but a question about what long-term effects it might have, even if it disappears. That's likely to come from pent-up demand from those who have not been able to attend appointments in recent months, from a change in the willingness of people to work in the NHS, or from the long-term health effects of the recession that we now have all too clearly entered. Joining me today to discuss this vital subject are two of the UK's leading experts on the economics of health and healthcare: Carol Proper, Professor of Economics at Imperial College London, Research Fellow at the IFS and President of the Royal Economic Society. And James Banks, Professor of Economics at Manchester University and Senior Research Fellow at the IFS. First, let me come to Carol. Carol, one immediate effect of the crisis has been the cancellation or postponement of literally hundreds of thousands of so-called routine hospital appointments. What sort of knock-on effect might that have on the NHS in coming years?
1: Thank you, Paul. Well, clearly what happened with COVID-19 was about 30% of the NHS's resources were diverted to dealing with COVID. Um, and that also entailed bringing back uh, retired staff and uh early regraduation of nurses. But despite that, the cancellation of what's called non-urgent treatment is going to have a long-term effect. We know that with every winter pand- flu pandemic, there's always a buildup of elective cases. This is going to be that kind of buildup, but much, much bigger. So in the first place, there's going to be a large Number of people who have straightforward elective procedures which have been cancelled and they're going to need to be done at some time. They're not going to get better by themselves, people needing hip replacements, things like that. But there are also non urgent treatment, includes people who, for example, are in, who have just been diagnosed with cancer or are waiting for, for example, operations for cancer. They will all need to be treated. And in the meantime, some, in some cases, their health will have been stable, and in some cases, it will be less stable. So you can see that there's probably this enormous wall of demand that is sitting there for the NHS to start mopping up. They are already starting to address that wall, but it's going to take a long time uh, before, I think, that that backlog of cases is cleared. On top of that, as you said, there's been a kind of behavioral response in that people have not been turning up at A&E. So we've seen A&E attendances drop by up to 50% in some cases. Now, in some cases, that might be quite good. The NHS for many years has said that they don't really want A&E used as a substitute for GP care. But in other cases, for example, the British Heart Foundation have estimated that some of those people with heart attacks haven't been turning up, or some of the people who've had minor strokes. And they, again, are going to be a category of people whose health has got worse because they've not been able to have the treatment. So not only are there more people who need to be treated, but there's going to be a subset of them who are in worse health and therefore will need more treatment than they would have otherwise done.
0: And it's quite um, striking. We talk about things like routine appointments and elective um, operations and so on. But these are big things. I mean, people not getting operated on for cancer, not turning up when they've had a heart attack, and even not having a, a hip replacement, which could be leave them in debilitating pain for a much longer period.
1: Yeah, that's correct. I think we think about these as cancellable but in fact the nhs runs very close to capacity most of its time and if you think even when at my starting point even if you have a sort of standard winter flu period there's always a big build up of cases that come from that and they are only p- cases like elective treatment for hip replacements in this case we've got people with pretty serious illnesses who haven't been able to have treatment or indeed have not sought treatment when they should have done because they've been worried about either overwhelming the NHS or getting COVID-19 themselves.
0: Have we got any way of knowing how long this backlog will last when we'll get back to, you know, to normal, as it were?
1: I've not seen any estimates of how long the backlog will last. And I think that's partly because, although we could do estimates based on winter flu, we've also got to take into account the fact that there may be a supply side response as well as a demand side response. What we have got though is some estimates of like who it might affect. And um, at the IFS, we did some work where we actually looked at who were the normal kind of people who are admitted for elective rather than emergency surgery. And you can see that the groups that are going to be affected are elective surgeries are used very heavily by people from over 45 to 50 onwards and the gradient rises very steeply with age up to about age 80. So it's going to be an older group who are affected. Um, It's going to be people who live in more deprived areas who are also going to be affected. The ethnicity mix is less clear, but what's clear is those people who are going to be affected, at least by this first round, are people who generally are older and more deprived. But on top of that, and as James is going to talk about, there will be other build-ups of health conditions that come from the economic recession that will also need to be dealt with. So I think it's very tricky to actually estimate how long it will take. And in part, how long it will take depends on how much people are prepared to have their care rationed. For example, how long they're prepared to, to um, put up with waiting lists.
0: Well, we might come back to that in a minute, and that's a really important point, getting the potential to be getting back to serious rationing and and waiting. But you mentioned one thing in your answer. You referred to issues on the supply side, because a lot of what we've been talking about is the fact that the demand is building up. But are there reasons to think that um, this crisis may have affected the capacity of the um, NHS, even ignoring any potential increase in demand?
1: I think so. I mean, I'm a. I'm not very. I'm a little sort of unsanguine about this, in the sense that what we saw in response to COVID was bringing in, for example, uh, nurses who haven't yet graduated and graduating them early. It's not that they're unqualified; they've just been graduated early, and a big uh, recruitment drive of doctors who'd gone into retirement. Now, I think we're going to see many of those doctors who've come out of retirement going back into retirement. There's no reason why they would stay. But I also think that many people in the service have been totally stretched. And the and many people in the service have felt that the government have not supported them as much as they might have done. For example, all the furore about whether there was or was not enough PPE. And I think that's going to make some people... Particularly, for example, older consultants perhaps think about uh, taking early retirement when they wouldn't previously have thought about that. It may put off some uh, individuals from, young individuals, from choosing to enter nursing. And then on top of that, we have perhaps how Britain is seen from the outside. We know that we we came into this crisis with a shortage of about 50,000 nurses, it was estimated. That was before even COVID. We know that we were going to have more problems there in recruiting because of Brexit. Now, we now have COVID, and if Britain, rather than the NHS probably have been seen as not dealing very well with COVID. And I think that's particularly in relationship to perhaps some of the other European countries, um, but perhaps some overseas countries outside the European Union. I think that if Britain is not seen as having dealt very well with COVID, this is an international nursing labor market. And I think nurses might choose to go somewhere else. They might choose to go to Germany or to, to, to um, Sweden, or to some of the other European countries rather than coming to Britain. And I think that's a very real possibility. The NHS might have been seen as doing well, but I'm not sure that the British government will be seen as doing well.
0: So a potential double whammy there. On one, on one front, British nurses and doctors may have been um, just overwhelmed by the experience of this and leave the service because it's just been too Awful for them, and, and partly because of the government response, you say, on PPE, and then the other problem being us looking less attractive to international doctors and nurses coming here.
1: I think so. And we're very dependent on both groups, obviously. We're very, it's a very open and competitive labour market that we operate in as Britain.
0: Do we have evidence yet of the extent to which um, current NHS workers are? fed up traumatized likely to leave or is this um something where at the moment we can only worry and speculate
1: i think clearly the the medical associations have been expressing concerns um but i think it's now it's still at the stage of speculation about exactly how this will play out in terms of attitudes i mean obviously for some people you know they, the, the environment they work in may have been very positive in that you see teams pulling together. But in other environments, it would have been pretty disruptive. And we know that people have been working very long hours at the same time as having to be careful not to infect the people that they live with. It's a lot of strain, and I think there are going to be a lot of people who need to take, uh, to step back from that strain. Um, but we don't yet know what that is. At least, not at a kind of national and public level. And
0: the government and the health service, as an employer, will need to recognise that and make appropriate um, uh, appropriate uh, changes to allow people to um, take whatever time they need. I guess. So you you said earlier that we came into this with a health service which was running, which runs at full capacity. Um, There's not much scope for um, coping with big additional demands because it's running at full capacity. So do you think we've learned lessons from the crisis about the way in which we fund and organise and run the NHS? Is this going to be an event which will lead us to rethink um, any of that?
1: I think undoubtedly it will. We have to think about how public health England has been able to step up or not step up to the issues. We need to think about
0: Perhaps you, could, sorry, perhaps you could say for listeners what Public Health England is and what it's supposed to do.
1: Public Health England essentially does the public health part of, of healthcare. care. It, it isn't involved with providing through the NHS, which is the NHS provider, but it's involved with issues like pandemics and, and the broader aspect of health. And that's Public Health England's job. Now, clearly, a pandemic falls into both the NHS's job to to cure people or uh, uh, try and prevent people from dying, and Public Health England is responsible for a public health response, which includes things like um, testing and tracing and all those kind of things. Now, I think what's been obvious in some of the more anecdotal stories about what's been happening is that quite a lot of NHS organisation happens at the wrong level. So you've seen individual consultants uh, seeking to find PPE for their staff and their hospitals, or even indeed their their units, not even their hospitals. Um, And at the same time, you've not been, so that that kind of thing, which you think might be done at a national level, and there might be national stockpiles of PPE to to deal with these things, have all been left to individual hospitals and individual managers and indeed individual doctors to try and source. So they're all happening at too lower level. On the other hand, things like track and trace, which probably should happen at a local level, because local knowledge, as many of the experts in track and trace keep telling us, is very important for track and trace. Track and trace has been left at some national level, where I don't think the national level is the right level to be doing it. So I think there is going to be quite a lot of discussion about the organisation of the NHS, and I'm hoping that it won't simply be about reorganising hospitals, but we'll be much more fundamental about asking which tasks should be done at which level in the NHS, which tasks are appropriate at a local level, including local authorities, and which tasks are appropriate at a national level. And I think in this crisis, we've got both wrong.
0: And is that is that new? I mean, we presume it feels like every you know, decade or so, we have a big conversation about reorganising the NHS, thinking about what should happen at At what level? What's gone wrong with the current organisation which has resulted in those perverse outcomes where what should be national is local and what should be local is national?
1: I think procurement, which is where PPE falls in, has been a kind of forgotten item in the NHS. The Carter Review several years ago drew attention to the fact that a lot of procurement is at the wrong level in the NHS. I mean, this isn't unique to the NHS, Um, Obviously, private sector firms have exactly the same issues. When you have large private sector firms with distributed um, uh, uh, sub-level plants or sub-level businesses, what level you do a procurement at really matters. And I don't think the NHS has really ever got to grips with that. The other argument, I think, around public health is that public health really depends on local authorities. And we've seen money coming out of local authorities at perhaps an unprecedented level in the last 10 years. So that's that's probably newer than it usually is. But you're quite right, Paul. I think we haven't really got an appropriate level. Having an organisation which employs so many people... Um, all as one unit, is great for believing in our NHS, but it's not actually perhaps great for always delivering healthcare at the level it ought to be delivered at.
0: Yes, and it's always been a problem, hasn't it, that uh, we uh, we almost worship at the NHS and therefore real change, even when it's really necessary, can be very difficult to achieve.
1: Uh, yes, indeed. And I would like to add one more thing, which is I think the other thing that's the more uh, that's definitely coming, as well as thinking about NHS organisation, is pay pressure in the NHS, particularly around pay pressure around nurses. I already alluded to the fact that coming into this with a shortage of nurses, I think we're going to have further shortage of nurses for the reasons that I outlined. This is undoubtedly going to lead to pay pressure and possibly also pressure on the system of wage regulation that happens Um, Listeners may not know, but what happens in the NHS is essentially in order that there's fairness in the NHS that a nurse in Sunderland doing the same job as a nurse in Southend is paid more or less the same, apart from a little bit of uplift for local living conditions, that means that wages are the same across the NHS. That provides real problems for people who live in areas where the cost of living is high for nurses. And I think that wage regulation system is going to have to be looked at and possibly moving towards more regional pay regulation rather than national regulation, on top of a general uplift, I think, in nursing wages and other staff wages, clerks and porters and other groups who I think have been very much undervalued by the labour market.
0: And as with many things, it looks like uh, this might be a catalyst for change, which has always looked like it might not be a bad idea. But James, I think you wanted to come in.
2: Well, on that point, I wonder if there's a potential good type of change coming along the line as well for the NHS with regard to the way that certain types of NHS activities have been pushed online through lockdown and distancing in a much more rapid rate that maybe I'm thinking here particularly about, for example, lots of GP services, Uh, someone prescribing pharmaceutical uh, and also maybe consultations in general. And I think that would that potentially free up some kind of primary healthcare uh, resources going forward?
1: Yes, and I think that is quite exciting, actually. The NHS for a long time has been trying to move more into digital uh, treatment and digital activities. And many GPs, I think, are up for this. And I think what this has shown is that some of the public at least have an appetite for this. You're Not, not everyone is going to be wanted to treat this way, but it does free up GP resources to be acting in a new way and may indeed reduce the number of visits to hospitals as well. For example, oncologists seeing some of their patients um, maybe irregularly, but not so often, but seeing them more regularly by phone or by Zoom. So I think that is very exciting, that that digital push may organically have happened by COVID.
0: I guess like many other parts of the economy, we'll have to wait to see whether people learn some of the lessons of uh, that they can work from home, they can do things over, um, over the internet, um, or whether it will simply revert to uh, the status quo ante. And that's, as you say, uh, potential for really shifting, uh, shifting the way that health is delivered. Um, but I want to move now um, on to talking to James a bit more about not looking so much at the health service, um, but about what the crisis, and in particular the recession that we're clearly in at the moment, might actually be doing to people's health. Because we're not just talking about a situation in which the health service may have to change, and indeed uh, there may be people whose health care has been delayed, but actually health may have changed as a result of this. Recession. So, James, what, in very broad terms, do we know about how previous recessions have affected people's health in the longer term, and and, and why might they do that?
2: Uh, Well, it's a complicated question, of course. Um, Well, even what we know about past recessions is complicated, and then to figure out how much that applies to the current COVID recession is going to be a second complicated step. Um, With regard to the past, I think um, we know... First of all, we know that within recessions themselves, within the time period of the recession, often mortality can actually fall. Certain types of economic activity are lower, uh, people are travelling less, there are, and as a result, there are fewer industrial accidents, traffic accidents, air quality tends to improve, and that can have effects on health. So so if, if you're thinking within the recession on, and just thinking about deaths, then counterintuitively, perhaps, Uh, we often have been seeing reductions in death rates during recessions. But, of course, there's more to health than just life or death. And if you start looking at the prevalence of diseases or mental health problems, um, then actually you can see those rise even within recessions. Uh, So, in fact, Carol has a very nice piece of work on this, studying the recession that just followed the great financial crisis in 2007-2008, and they showed... Um, quite large increases in the prevalence of chronic conditions, that would be heart disease, stroke, uh, lung diseases, and indeed mental health conditions, um, that that persisted um, and were really quite substantial um, in terms of the the number of people with disease. Um, And then, of course, you have to then think about after the recession, what happens after, and uh, you might think of the aftermath of the recession. The, the economy is recovering and growing again, but there are groups that will have their health trajectories and their future life permanently scarred. Um, and in particular, um, the those growing up in very young ages, uh, even in utero, uh, so uh, b- babies sort of born in recessions and then those in the sort of early two, three, four years of life have been shown to have um, quite strikingly shorter lifespans than those who were born into um, more advantaged economic times. Um, So that the aftermath, if you like, of the recession on longevity and and chronic disease and all the things that go along with that um, is a separate issue to what's going on in the recession itself. Um, Now, how all this generalizes to the current COVID recession is an important question. Um, firstly, it's worth saying that not all recessions are the same. <laughs> so, it, you know, the uh, the, the recession, the, certainly in the UK that followed the great financial crisis, um, was characterized by the low-income part of the population being relatively well protected compared to the rest. So the distributional consequences of that recession were really rather different from from previous recessions and rather unfortunately i suppose that's the recession that we've studied most in terms of its consequences on health partly because that's where we've had the best data uh, you know where we've got the administrative data on the health and the uh, the effect of the recession itself so so we've we've what will happen in a covid recession when we know that actually at least depending on how the government's protective policies work out, we know that the the impact of the recession is very predominantly on the lower income part of the distribution. That may well have worse health effects because that's where more vulnerable households are. Um, And the second thing I think, which is probably even more important, which is why generalising from previous recessions to this recession is hard, is that we've never had a recession that has been caused by lockdown and social distancing. And they themselves may well have effects on health and health outcomes going forwards. Um, And in fact, if you really think from first principles, if you like, if if, if you wanted to think about what would the long run effects of COVID be, you'd have to start from, is there going to be a vaccine? When is it going to come? And who's going to get it? Because that's obviously going to have its own direct effects. But then you'd have to think through how is lockdown going to be lifted how long are we going to have some form of distancing for and how is that going to affect risk factors for health and then how is that going to affect the recession and then how again is that recession going to affect health so you'd need to break the process down to those three all rather important links of the chain so huge amounts of
0: uncertainty there and i suppose one of the Um, things that we know from previous economic episodes is that some of these effects can be very long-lasting. You mentioned the impacts on uh, very young children or babies in in, in their later lives, but we know, don't we, from geographically focused recessions, I mean the 1980s in the UK and some of the areas of the US that suffered um, very badly from closing of industries, uh, that that can have very severe effects for a very long period, particularly on often men of working age.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think these factors all build up, um, you know, in in some of the social epidemiologists talk about the uh, The accumulation of advantage and disadvantage over the life course or a concept of what's called allostatic load is that essentially stresses and strains build up and sometimes they can you know they can build up non-linearly so a a sort of two two can be worse than two two uh, you know a stress of order two can be worse than two stresses of order one so you know severe stresses can then have their consequence that will then multiply out future stresses in this way so in some sense uh, what you know our health at any one point in our t- in our own lives is always a function of the life course exposures that we've had when we had them in our lives in our developmental sort of processes and so these 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 do create very very long shadows of economic events and they raise the issue of what you might think of as resilience so some people can bounce back some people can't and shocks that happen in some periods of your life are harder to bounce back from than others and so all these things kind of accumulate and as you say for those people for whom these shocks come when their bodies are and brains are developing in very early life and in the womb these shocks have very long consequences indeed and are much more severe than maybe if the shocks came later in life and people are better insured either in terms of their psychological financial or sort of health Resources which we they have to draw on. And do we think these things are irreversible? I mean, if
0: you do have this set of stressors, uh, maybe as a as a very, when you're very young, or maybe when you're older, are there things government can do or uh, society can do to push back against that, or is this something that you know we are really stuck with once it's happened?
2: I mean, I think that's a very important question. Um, I think that we know. From the evidence on early childhood, that early life disadvantage can be reversed through interventions. I mean, essentially, that's what the Sure Start program was doing, and it was shown to be both effective in terms of improving health out and and social outcomes for the children who were covered by that early childhood intervention, um, and indeed, um, as well, more so than being effective, it was actually it was actually shown to be cost-effective in the sense that the return on investment were greater than the cost of the programme. So I think certainly there are initiatives that can reverse these things. Um, now, how effective they can be later in life when, thing, when trajectories are more firmly set is a very difficult question to untangle in the data. You often see the fact that people in these programmes get better, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the programmes themselves were the cause of the improvement. Um, And that's a complicated question to get to the bottom of. And really tough uh, for governments here, because I think this is one of those
0: things where the short-term policies, short-term economic uh, impacts can last for decades uh, in a way that um, is both uncertain and very difficult for government to
2: deal with. Absolutely. And in very different ways for different groups as well. So, um, you know, both in terms of the initial shocks, but also the way in which people can bounce back from those shocks or the way in which those shocks persist, um, which makes both the evaluation of the programmes harder and indeed the policy design much harder. Um,
0: Yeah. Can can I um, go back to something that, I mean, Carol mentioned uh, earlier on that um, one of the groups who, are going, who have been affected badly um, uh, over the last few months have been those over the age of 50 on the whole who might otherwise have been using elective um, operations and using the health service for non-COVID-related things but haven't been able to, uh, to do so. So there's going to be a knock-on effect um, on that age group You've talked um conversely about uh actually potentially rather a nasty effect on the very youngest, um yeah, if if we have a significant um recession. I mean, should we think therefore of this as a, a shock to the health um uh of all of us going forward, or is this something where we might think there are different effects for different age groups, both economically and from a health point of view?
2: Well, I think um you've if you at a, macroe- a macroeconomic perspective if you like if you take the average young person and the average old person there are certainly some important differences that um, will play out um, but I think also we know that within those groups you know the sort of within group inequalities are are being exaggerated here so the most disadvantaged within the elderly are being more affected than the least disadvantaged and that would be also the case within the groups of the young and actually within adolescents and um, young adults i mean what we have not talked about yet um, is the issue of mental health specifically to disease and i think when it comes to mental health uh, we might want to worry about young adults in particular um, adolescents uh, where the prevalence of mental health problems was already rising um, and we're pretty sure or we've already seen, in fact, the early data has shown big effects on the mental health of everybody, and in particular those groups. And again, mental health is a one, another one of these events that have long consequences for not just for your future mental health but for your future physical health and for your future mortality. Uh, so depression and anxiety are known risk factors for cardiovascular disease and for mortality. And again, treatment can help. So there's uh, there's lots of examples of randomised trials preventing, you know, of counselling, for example, uh, for mental health problems, which can lead to improvement in subsequent physical health. So again, the, the, these are places where there are shocks that are going on and where we might particularly worry about vulnerable young adults. So I think in all these cases, you are going to see average effects that are different for different age groups or different generations. But as with most things in health inequalities, these are sort of swamped by the differences between the most advantaged and the least advantaged within those groups.
1: I totally agree with, with James's assessment that it's the within group inequality that matters. But it's also, I think, has something about to say about where we want to be focusing money for treatment, um, which is particularly, I think, around mental health which has been shown that talking therapies, as James says, are very cost effective, but also more generally preventative health measures, which have always been both preventative and mental health measures, particularly for the young, have been the Cinderella, of, along with elder care, of the NHS. And I think COVID will really expose the need to address both, that kind of aspect of moving more care into preventative health which may of course be possible if gp resources are freed up by changing technology and delivering those services
2: yeah i think that raises an important point which is um the sort of broader context of the future nhs and health spending in general is i mean there are so many directions that the country could go in terms of how much is spent, how that spending is financed and what the money is spent on, um, you know, but those could have inter- those are going to have intergenerational issues, whether we fund that spending from you know, borrowing taxation, taxation from different groups is going to determine who in a generational sense will pay but also what that money is spent on, whether it's preventative care, whether it's palliative care, which we haven't talked about at all, and then NHS is particularly bad at palliative care as well, which is essentially the quality of death and the quality of conditions uh, at at the end of life, Um, or whether it's the more conventional NHS spending. I think all those things are very much up for grabs in terms of the future direction of provision and the way that we finance it. And
0: arguably, the current crisis has been the sort of the classic example, as it were, of focusing entirely on the short term. I think, you know, inevitably, probably, that we need to, we're, 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 we're treating and saving those who are, uh, currently have COVID, but, uh, but ignoring effectively the long run effects that you've been describing, particularly on the mental health of younger people and the longer term effect, potential effect of the recession on people's health and longevity
2: going forward. I think that's right. I mean, and it's, but but I can, for understandable reasons, I think, and you, you kind of alluded to it, it's, it's the, first of all, of course, the, the short run effects are indeed, you know, terrible and enormous. And it's worth remembering that's even with the lockdown, (laughs) we've had 60,000 excess deaths in the UK already at the time that we're talking. And that, and then we've had an unprecedented historical lockdown, so you know you can imagine. So, so I think there's some people who said, "Oh well, you know, is the lockdown a price worth paying?" You know, and that's been a sort of debate on some kind of popular kind of commentaries. But the the the, the deaths would have been you know of different order of magnitude without that. So obviously there's this incredible salient and very relevant short-term issues that are trying to be traded off in government policy. Against something which is very uncertain, very nebulous, very long term. I mean, governments don't have a particularly good record in really long term investment um, anyway. Um, and I think arguably that gets worse when times are hard. So, you know, th- things like times of austerity uh, uh, traditionally makes that even worse. So so I think there are lots of issues why it's a very difficult set of policy choices to try and engage with that long-term agenda in the consequence of this short-term salient issues that need to be met.
1: And I, I, would, I would echo that and also say that, you know, it... We need to invest in our health in the UK, and this has really in some ways exposed that partly by causing, as James has said, likely impacts which will lower health, particularly for vulnerable groups, but partly because the the health of the nation and existing there were already existing inequalities in health which were quite stark in Britain and needed addressing. So that, and that trade off is very difficult to do because many of the inequalities that arise arise, as James said, at the end of people's lives when people have had many shocks to the system um, and they don't tend to get ameliorated at the point they should be ameliorated. So I think I'm making a plea more generally that you know it's very hard for governments generally to do preventative care, whether it's around. Uh, you know, uh, around health or any other aspects of protecting humans versus curative, and I think we really are going to have a big debate about curative and how we fund it and how much curative relative to preventative. And maybe,
2: maybe just to to follow up on that, and is if you're thinking about preventative. it forces you to think about risk factors rather than outcomes and again that's a useful way of going back to this point about recessions you know in some sense we, we can know the outcomes from previous recessions but what's really informative for now is how do recessions change risk factors because that will then tell us how future outcomes might evolve in a more theoretically informed way so we kind of know you know we might want to ask you know what's lockdown done for drinking uh, and is that different to previous recessions? We already know that that might be the case. Well, we know drinking a risk factor, but we might talk about mental health, social isolation, loneliness. We might talk about smoking. Incidentally, we might talk about things like exercise, commuting, and working from home, which for some groups, risk factors are going to be improving as a result of this recession. And that may be uh, you know, because of the fact, like we were talking about with the NHS, that some people in some occupations are going to be able to move aspects of their life Online, in a way that will be lead to improvements in their health. Um, so I think, really, for me, thinking through, so almost from first principles, the risk factors of like what drives disease, what drives disability, and how are those driving factors being affected, both by Average recessions and by this very much not average recession that we're going to be in. That, I think, is the crucial way of thinking about how health, and that will be, be crucial for the NHS in thinking about what kind of health it needs to deal with in the future.
0: And crucial, I think,
2: for what Carol
0: was talking about, because Carol, I think when you were saying you wanted us, we need to invest in health, you weren't talking about just chucking a lot of extra money at the NHS. You were talking about exactly investing in the sets of interventions which might stop people needing the NHS in the first place
1: exactly i mean we know that health is driven by the environment and it may be that the new commuting patterns and less use of transport hopefully will for example make people's air pollution lower their environment better there's a whole there's a whole set of factors which affect health. And healthcare is really quite a small part of that. Yes, when it's needed, you know, for treatment of cancer, you, you need healthcare. But for a lot of the development of health, it's much more about people's living conditions, their working conditions, the broad outside environment in which they live, the amount of exercise they can take, and I think we need to be thinking about moving to a more holistic approach. Now, some of these things may be very cost effective. We know, for example, I've already cited that, you know, James has talking therapies for treatment of mental health conditions are shown to be effective in many conditions. School, But school activity, young children and exercise, programs around smoking cessation, but programs around improving people's working lives are going to improve their health. You can see it in other countries where actually there's less inequality in the younger because their working lives have improved and the inequality is more in the older, for example, in France, because they had harder working lives when they were young.
0: I think that's a, that's a very that's a very good point at which I think we probably need to end this fascinating uh, conversation. I think what we've learned here is that when we're thinking about health, and COVID, we need to go far beyond uh, the immediate impact and the numbers of deaths and the 60,000 excess deaths uh, that James alluded to. We need to think about how we're organising the NHS going forward, given the huge pressure there's going to be on it from the pent-up demand, from those who haven't been using it for non-COVID-related things recently. And in particular, uh, what Carol mentioned about the, uh, the the dangers that we may be losing doctors and nurses and other professionals from the NHS, both because of the trauma that they've been through over recent months and because uh, we may look less attractive to those coming from abroad to work in the NHS. And then there's the longer-term effects that James in particular has talked about, the impact of uh, the recession on people's health in the long run, the impact on mental Um, health and the way that we need to think about offsetting some of those impacts. I think some positives, at least to come out of this conversation, as Carol mentioned, we may well move uh, to a different way of delivering uh, healthcare to some extent. As in many aspects of our lives, we've got used to doing uh, more things online. And we also need to think about how we really uh, invest in health and not just invest in health care. And surely that's something that we'll be thinking about much more seriously, I hope, as time goes on. Anyway, we'll bring this episode uh, to an end. Thank you very much uh, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of The IFS Zooms In, please hit subscribe and rate us. And you can always stay on top of our latest work by visiting www.ifs.org.uk. Stay well And we look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thank you.